Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Today's episode is about a book that is very near and dear to my heart, The Romance of American Communism by Vivian Gornick. This is a book that was out of print for many years. It was written in 1977, and it attained a kind of cult status on the left. I think I first heard about the book from political scientist Corey Robin, who mentioned it maybe on social media somewhere, and I picked up a copy from Amazon for a penny, and I got this you know, beat-up copy with no dust jacket. It was a discarded book from a library, and I read this book, which is a collection of interviews from members of the American Communist Party. Uh, with a focus on the party's heyday in the 30s and 40s. The book came out at a time when discussion of the American Communist Party was basically relegated to treating life in that party as drudgerous, as gray and dull, and basically existing only to serve... Joseph Stalin and the interests of the Soviet Union at the period of its highest Stalinism. And Gornick is someone who grew up in New York City in that era, the heyday of the American Communist Party, with parents who were Jewish immigrant garment workers and who were not members of the party themselves, they were socialists, but... uh, some of their best friends were party members. I mean, she had party members who were uh, family members who were in the party, uh, and the um, J- Jewish life in uh, New York City, especially in the immigrant working class communities that uh, she was a part of, especially on the Lower East Side, uh, the, that world, as she describes it, revolved around uh, the party, even uh, for people who weren't members of it. Uh, the party played this really central role in uh, political and in cultural life. And her experience in that world was not one of uh, gray automaton rank-and-file party members just uh, robotically carrying out the whims of Stalin. It was one that was incredibly rich. It was one of people who were filled, as she writes, with uh, an incredible sense of passion. Uh, And... That passion was being wielded to what she considers to be noble ends, which are a project to try to remake the world, to make it into a better place. And she writes this book and recounts these experiences as a way to honor that passion. She also recounts the negative aspects of that life uh, from people who did become kind of like rote, wooden Marxist-Leninist ideology recounters uh, who would wag their fingers at you if you were not uh, towing the party line correctly. Um, And especially in the book, you get the sense that uh, the horrors of Stalinism ended up snuffing out everything that was beautiful about American Communist Party life. I don't think that the romance of American Communism is quite the right title for the book. It should be called maybe The Agony and the Ecstasy of American Communism. Or if you want to use the, you want to stick with the word romance, uh, it should be seen as, you know, not just like a romance story where everybody, uh, you know, kisses and rides off into the sunset, but, you know, a, a real tragic romance story. Uh, one in which you you experience these, like, incredibly high levels of passion of the participants who's interviews she collects in the book um, and everything that you know made them feel on fire and alive and trying to change the world um, but then the heartbreak that comes when those people's ideals are shattered by the revelations of Stalin's crimes. There's much more that I could say about this book. Uh, I wrote a short review of it for In These Times magazine recently. I'm hoping to find the time to write a longer one about what the book means to me and what it could mean to the new generation of 21st century socialist activists who will see themselves uh, reflected in the book. Um, But 
I've gone on for long enough uh, because our conversation today goes on for <laughs> quite a bit because uh, everybody who reads this book uh, has a lot to say about it. So I'm joined for a conversation with three people, Alyssa Battistoni, Sean Estelle, and Megan Day. Megan Day is a staff writer at Jacobin and the co-author with me of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. Alyssa Battistoni is a editorial board member of Jacobin. She's the author of uh, a recent piece uh, in Descent that is a long review of this book, which I highly recommend and I will link to in the show description. It's called Bad Romance from the Spring 2020 issue of Descent. Uh, Alyssa is a political theorist at the Harvard University Center for the Environment, and she's also the co-author of the Jacobin book from Verso, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. And Sean Estelle is an elected member of the National Political Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America. The NPC is the uh, elected governing body of the DSA. So here's my conversation with Sean, Alyssa, and Megan. Alyssa, Sean, and Megan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I just want to start with you all's reception of this book, your kind of like personal experience of reading it. Um, because this book is is different, especially for people who are socialists today. It's not a book that you open up and you're like, ah, I am going to, you know, absorb every fact that I need to know about life in the American Communist Party or something. It's a book that is about the kind of emotional register that, uh, you know, the, the emotional lives of members of the Communist Party in its heyday, and uh, that tends to elicit some feelings for people who are involved in contemporary leftist politics. So uh, let's just start with that kind of uh, uh, level of feeling. Uh, Megan, why don't you start? How, how, did you, uh, how did you feel reading this book? Well, I just finished this book after having so many people, so many of my comrades tell me to read it over and over and just waiting until it was the appropriate time. I do think this was in many ways the exact right time to do it because I don't know about all of you, but the end of the second Bernie Sanders presidential campaign when we're all on lockdown feels like a natural time to stop and think about what exactly we've gotten ourselves into. At least that's how it feels for me. Um, since I passionately hurried to a DSA meeting the weekend after Donald Trump won, after joining in the summer, um, I have basically been barreling headlong into just continuing to do as much socialism related stuff as possible and there have been few only a few times when i've been able to like stop and really think about what how exactly my own life has changed and what that kind of appetite is in myself and one of these times was when i last year was able to take a minute to read the book this life by the philosopher martin hoglund which gave me the opportunity to kind of like breathe and expand and zoom out and this was i mean i think this is only the second time honestly reading reading the romance of american communism when i have really had a, a a long meditation on how my own life has changed since i became an, an organized socialist and i'm sure that um that you know that everybody has a different experience of the book for me the thing that was the most revelatory and relatable was the chapter the beginning of the book like how people came to socialism and all of the different places that they came from and the incredible commonality of 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 certain aspects of the experience so there are people who came from utter dire poverty people who came from the kind of poverty and alienation from a culture that wasn't their own and like no real intellectual traditions who felt an awakened sense of self when they first discovered socialism, like literally an awakened sense that they have a self, right? After feeling like they're a, a, an inanimate object that exists to work for survival. And then on the far opposite side of that, you have people who grew up in, you know, wealth and luxury, but with like a deep emptiness and alienation from mankind that gnawed at them until eventually in elite environments, they encountered socialism because it was in the air. And it just 
made them feel that sense of like yearning and loneliness that they experienced, even though they had all of this economic freedom and luxury, there was like a, a puzzle piece that was finally put in the in the puzzle that completed the puzzle for them. And then they were, you know, bam, they were they were Communist Party organizers for 20 or 30 years after that. And these are such disparate experiences. But the, the commonality that really jumps out at at me and the one that really I really relate to is this idea that you become more of a human being when you become an active and organized socialist. You feel a stronger sense of kinship to humanity in general, to people, to individual people, of course, because you've got these institutions and these relationships, but also in a more metaphysical sense to, to humanity in general. Um, maybe I've just been kind of the melodrama of the book has rubbed off on me a little bit. I think you can hear that, but I, I really do feel that way. And I think that you can see it in every single vignette pretty much. And it certainly relates to my own experience. Yeah. I want to return to that, what you referenced about that sense of enlarged humanness, uh, that people got from joining the party in a, in a bit later, but, um, uh, Alyssa, you uh, say in the opening paragraph of your review of the book that, uh, like Megan, people kept recommending that you read this book. You also did what I did, which is you bought it uh, online from from Amazon for uh, yeah, a few dollars. I <laughs> I think that uh, there were so many socialists who did that and bought up those copies and then told other people to do that that eventually the price of the book went to like at one point it was like a hundred fifty dollars on Amazon because all the old library copies or whatever people had pulled out of their basement had been bought up and that was maybe when a, a verso you know started paying attention and realized they should probably republish it but um you say in your uh in the first couple sentences of your review that um you had uh read it after a grad union uh effort organizing drive at yale uh, was uh, quashed and that you felt like the book, uh, you said, quote, this book got me, got what I'd been through like nothing I'd ever read before. So can you describe that experience? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's really interesting hearing Megan's experience of it because I think in a lot of ways I read it at sort of a similar moment of um, a moment of setback and having, uh, you know, been through this um, you know, really transformative experience that nevertheless did not end in the sort of victory I had hoped it would and in the sort of, um, you know, overcoming of obstacles and, and that we, we hit a wall at some point. And so I, you know, that was the time I finally actually had the time <laughs> to read this book because um, people would be like, you should read this book. And I was like, I'm so busy organizing. I don't have time to read this book. Um, so then I, so then I was reading it, um, you know, uh, after the sort of, um, um, the end of a phase of this union campaign that I've been involved in organizing for several years. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really remarkable. Like it was just, um, I had been really looking to understand my experience more and to, uh, understand it, not, not only in terms of sort of thinking about, you know, what strategic, um, errors we might have made or hadn't made or what sort of the, um, the, the conditions that we were up against were that we could have changed or not. Um, you know, there was, I, I kept coming across sort of left writing on tactics and strategy that was um, helpful in ways, but that wasn't really speaking to what it felt like to organize and what sort of this experience had been like um, on a really um, deep and personal level. And so reading this book was like, oh my God, this is explaining so much about it. Um, and in the sense, it wasn't just like, oh, it's a personal experience, but that was in the way Megan is describing this very, um, the way that you sort of access parts of yourself through political um, experience and through the process of, of, you know, being engaged in political action with other people. Um, that really is about like finding a different self um, within yourself and seeing other people in a different light and understanding your relationships with one another in a different light. Um, and it was it was just amazing to sort of see that represented um, in these stories and to see that described in the stories of the American communists. Because um, you know, as Megan's saying, so many of them will will describe this moment of um, suddenly understanding their place in the world in a different way, of understanding the possibilities of what they could become and what they can do, um, how they can transform the world with other people in, in a way that is not, you know, that had not before been sort of comprehensible or, or imaginable if you're, um, you know, if, if you're 
you know, if, if everything in the world is telling you you're nothing, you're, you have no power, um, and you can never have power, then to, to suddenly realize that that's not the case is, is a really transformative experience. And so I think um, that seeing that described, it was, it was fascinating to see it sort of like this very, in a very different moment, um, this, uh, what I had experienced in, you know, a completely different historical context on the page. Um, and it's interesting, we can get into this more, but then when I reread it recently to write this review, I had a really different experience of reading it, actually, um, which was a lot more um, irritated with it. Uh, and I can say more about that. But so I think my first experience with it was like very um, overwhelmed by like the, the like real beauty of the stories she's telling and the beauty of like what it, it means to people um, to, to be part of like a, a mass movement that is sort of changing the their place in the world and the conditions of possibility um, for like their future. Uh, and that was that was, I think, what struck me on first reading. Um, yeah, it can come back to the second time around. That's really funny because I also read it twice for the exact same purposes as you and I had a similar experience. I don't know if I was annoyed, but I certainly the what I read the second time did not really feel like the same thing that I remembered reading like five years ago when I when I read it for the first time. Um, Sean, you are both a, a elected leader in the Democratic Socialists of America, and you've also been in, involved in political organizing of various kinds for a long time. Did you have a similar uh, personal reaction to reading the book? I actually had a very intense emotional experience reading the book, not only because of the um, like nature of the politics that was running through it, but also just a really intense personal identification or like recognition of the role that ideology and like ideological systems were playing in that humanness uh that megan you referred to um you know i grew up in basically a like closed circuit uh <laughs> ideological bubble uh of calvinist christianity um and then when i was 18 uh and i went to a public university I ended up coming out and having my entire ideological system shattered um and so for me the chapter that actually was resonating the most throughout was the chapter four, um, when they talk about like going back into the world or having their system sort of shatter. And I think both throughout the book, there's an undercurrent of sometimes surfacing, you know, the relationship between uh, religious systems and the system of Marxism that was being set up. And Alyssa, I think you talk about that in your review too, where, you know, um, that's like a, a tired analogy that many people make, but also there is something there um, too. And I think this book sort of goes back and forth in the tension and the relationship between um, like religion and dogma and um, some of the like uh, connective tissue between the ways that people are trying to make that that search for um, like sense making and meaning making in the world and a like de decipherable reality. So that was a large part of the really intense emotional experience that I had reading the book. And it was surfacing a lot of memories, not only from like childhood and high school and growing up, but then also the experience of the year and a half, two years where I like watched my entire system and my worldview fall apart and I had to reconstruct it. Um, and it took time for me to connect that to politics uh, and to actually uh, being in um, like collective struggle and collective motion and collective action with people. Um, and I often return to and often reflect on, um, you know, what that experience of growing up in a highly ideological atmosphere was like and how it's informed the way that I think about politics and just like making meaning more generally in the world. And I totally agree with Megan too that like this is a really important moment for people that have been organizing for a long time or people that joined because of one of the Sanders campaigns to really dig into affect and into the emotionality of like 
um, why they are making the choices they're making and what sort of commitments they have to their comrades. You know, it's funny that you bring up religion now. Both you and Megan have brought up religion. Alyssa brings it up uh, in her piece. I think if there were people who haven't read the book and they're listening to this conversation, and they're like, I thought this book was about the Communist Party. Like, why the hell are you guys talking about all these? You had intense, well, what are these intense personal experiences that you had? But that this is a real, like, testament to the book and to how the book talks about engagement in the Communist Party as having experiences that are similar uh, to religious ones or any other intense ones that are, like, how you create meaning in your life i mean i i grew up the uh, the son of a pastor and and i still uh identify very strongly with the christian tradition that i grew up with um and there are throughout the whole throughout the whole thing you're thinking about uh you're thinking about religion uh that, you know there's she she makes this argument in the beginning that like uh you know she is describing this universe that she was a part of um, she, she personally was a part of the kind of the, the hub of, uh, American communism, which was in New York city. Um, she's from the Bronx and she writes about how it, the real, the center of the center was in the lower East side in New York city. Um, but has these really moving scenes that I think about a lot about, uh, the, sitting around her kitchen table with her family members uh her parents were like socialists they were fellow travelers in the party they weren't actually members of the party but she had uh family members who were members of the party and she describes people sitting around their kitchen table talking about politics and there is both uh, a recognition that an ideology the ideology of marxism gave these people who were you know, poor, working class, Eastern European Jewish immigrants who, most of whom, like, worked in sweatshops in Lower East Side, they were, like, the wretched of the earth. And having this ideology gave them a sense of meaning. I mean, it's almost messianic. It was like, you know, you, you, you know, you are suffering now on this earth, but you are the means by which the world will be redeemed, right? <laughs> the world... Uh, you know, you, you you will save the world from itself uh, because you are the heroic worker who has this place in this like Marxist cosmology. Uh, you know, you're you're the one who who saves it from the from the evil doers. Um, so there's this ideology that gives their life meaning. And she writes super movingly about like, imagine what our lives would have been like if we had not had this ideology. We would have been the wretched of the earth, and we just would have been wretched. We would have uh, been miserable because our lives sucked so much. Uh, and we, and we didn't like see a, 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 you know, a important place for us. We would have just felt like we, we were dirt and that was like what we were consigned to be for the rest of our lives. Um, but then not only is there the ideological piece, there is the organization piece and the organization is the means through which, uh, the ideology gets transmitted and it gets put into place in everyday life. And there is no, um, there, there's no real, like the ideology can't really take hold, uh, on the earth without the, the means of transmission, which is the party. Right. And, uh, I always thought about that with my own religious experience. I mean, like, you know, as I said, I grew up the son of a pastor and I always described myself, you know, people like to say that they're spiritual, but not religious. Like I've always said that I'm religious, but not spiritual. Like I don't have like a, a, a big uh, need to like feel spiritual experiences all the time, but I believe in the in the religious part, like the the you know the institutional uh, part that I lived my entire life in, because that was where I got all my meaning. It, it helped, of course, that I didn't have a repressive uh, and you know conservative <laughs> religious upbringing. Um, but so th those are the kind of the two things that she really focuses on in that intro, right? Is the the, the ideology that gives people's lives meaning, and the party is the means through which. Uh, those things can uh, be communicated. Um, did any of you have any sort of reaction to uh, that uh, description of uh, th those two critical pieces of, of life under the Communist Party? Uh, you know, the, the either the ideological piece or the organizational piece? Well, I guess I'll maybe say this is maybe a good moment to sort of lead into what I found frustrating about the book the second time around, um, or what it came to sort of feel as like a tension in it in some way, which is this simultaneously describing this very, um, you know, what I think we all recognize as an experience um, that is in some way, you know, I think um, 
I certainly thought of it as as part of the experience of being in struggle in some way and the, and the ways that you develop sort of like capacities and um, come to understand your life and meaning through that. But she's she's really um, suggesting it's part of this meaning making more generally, like this kind of trans historical meaning making that's like, you know, for all of in all of human history, there's this desire for meaning and it kind of gets directed in different directions. So it might end up in religion, it might end up in the Communist Party. And it's sort of like, you know, just this, this, this desire to make sense of the world um, that like attaches to some organizational form or ideology or something. Um, and that can be really meaningful. Um, and, you know, you can you can do a lot with that, but that ultimately is sort of a problem or that that is also it's sort of like, you know, the, the sort of seed of destruction is embedded in that search for meaning um, and that you end up like, you know, losing yourself in the in the pursuit of meaning, you, uh, you know, ideology um, or an ideological way of making sense of the world becomes dogma. Like she's very uncomplimentary towards in the comparison to religion. Like when she compares things to religion, it's not flattering. <laughs> um, it's like you are just, um, you know, yeah. Uh, Marxism is is constantly referred to as sort of this like dogmatic, um, just like re- recitation of like what you're supposed to say. Um, you know, there's there's throughout. I guess the second time reading it, I realized how much actually I think under the the very beautiful stories she's telling, there's this like very um, I think damning critique um, that I actually don't agree with. Like I, I disagree with her her assessment or her critique, and I think it stems from this like kind of weird like fudge she's doing of of the um, I guess, of how universal an experience this is. And I think I, that's, I'm kind of curious, like what other people, how other people responded to this, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's tough because it, she is describing something um, that I think is, is a, a kind of universal experience of engaging in, in sort of um, meaningful practices. Um, and yet, like, if we follow that, then it sort of suggests that we'll always just end up you know, that like the CP, the the end of the CP and the sort of um, the way that people end up like defending Stalinism or uh, or sort of blinding themselves to, um, to, you know, the things that are wrong with the organizational structure, the things that CP is doing, that that's inevitable and will happen because we'll all always be blinded by like our desire for meaning and acceptance of these like um, ideological structures. And I don't actually think that's true. <laughs> um, so I think that that's where actually like having the specificity is important. Um, and we can talk about that more. But, um, but I do think that there's a way to like, think about that comparison to religion that doesn't have to be um, like a negative one. But that certainly struck me as how she is mobilizing it throughout as a critique. Yeah, I mean, she it says in the intro that uh, you know she sets out to capture this passion among the Communist Party members, and she does so in partially in response to the way that the inner lives of Communist Party members had been treated up to that point, which is that they were all sort of automatons. That they, I think she says at one point, they like they walk into the Communist Party a like full human being, and then they walk out like with their soul stamped out of them, basically. And she was like, "No, that is absolutely not what the full experience of life in the party was like." Uh, but then she also does say that, uh, you know, well, or she says that there there was a passion there that is not captured in those descriptions of, of po- Communist Party members as being automatons. Um, and so she wants to capture that passion, but that that passion could or did end up being harnessed to towards uh, towards towards the end of Stalinism. Right. Like it, it be, people were blinded by that passion such that they uh, were willing to uh, excuse, you know, moral horrors and the scene that one of the scenes that sticks most closely in my mind uh or most most vividly in my mind uh before reading it the second time was the scene where she's at that same kitchen table and she's arguing with her aunt who's a stalinist and she's like pounding the table and she's like all of this in the name of socialism you know describing stalin's crimes after after khrushchev's revelations um and and that's why i i i like that stuff is so thick in the book, especially on the second reading. I I had more of a like there was more of those that kind of uh, description of that passion gone awry than I remembered from the first time reading. The first time I'm reading it, I just remember like feeling like oh my god, this book gets me. It's like speaking to my experience as a socialist activist. But uh, but the second time it was more like oh this can really be taken to some some bad ends. I guess I. I'm somebody who wants to 
wrestle with that, the possibility of that kind of passion being taken in that uh, really harmful direction. Like, I think we should talk about the crimes of Stalinism and like make sure we don't do that again. Uh, but I also think that we're at a time, not just in the socialist movement, but in the world, in the 21st century, where there's no lack of warnings out there that people have absorbed about the dangers of that passion. Like we all understand that Stalinism is bad and we should not do it. But the thing that we are lacking and that this book provides is like an, a kind of encouragement and affirmation of people who choose to tap into that passion towards, you know, noble ends. And, you know, at a time when people, you know, sort of what postmodern time when people are afraid to sort of uh, jump into, you know, a project like, uh, socialism or any kind of big big project about trying to make the world better they're afraid to jump into that with both feet um, I read the book and I see an affirmation of people who are uh, who do that like uh, it, it, it got messy uh, in the case of the Communist Party it got extremely messy uh, but she's like that human desire to tap into that passion for, for you know world remaking purposes was a noble and good one, and we don't we don't get enough of that message uh, in in the year 2020. Megan, you want to respond to that? Yeah, it's interesting trying to tease out what exactly Vivian Gornick uh, thought about what went wrong with the Communist Party when she was writing this book, and then also to think about the introduction that she wrote to the book or the preface or the thing that she wrote for the new edition, where she basically says like she kind of she borderline disavows the book. I mean, she's a little she's a little down on herself. She's basically saying this book is overwritten and also it was just a little too ro romantic. I mean, the romance of American communism, I think she thinks that she was a little too kind uh, on that front, Micah. And that and that like ties in with stuff that uh, that uh, Alyssa mentions in her review about like the interview in Jewish Currents, where she's like saying that she didn't support Bernie Sanders and all the rest of it. Like she is she is down not just on the book, but like on the whole you know socialist political project of the 21st century. Yeah, that's where she is right now, and I almost think that you might be able to see um, seeds of that in the book because I think that to the extent that um, she's putting forward a almost like a Greek tragedy vision of what went wrong with the Communist Party, which is that these people were well-intentioned and in fact were some of the most brilliant uh, souls to ever burn in America. They, It was really their passion that led them astray. This seems to be a progressive critique of, like a sort of a progressive critique of the far left, actually. Um, whereas conservatives will say, well, socialism is literally just a hunger for authoritarianism. You are just an authoritarian. You're basically a fascist. That's why we don't like you. Uh, the progressive will say, look, I agree with what you're trying to do here, and I know that you're well-intentioned, but you, it, the, this, zeal, this zealousness that I'm getting from you is actually um, going to be yours and my undoing if, if, you, if you let it burn too brightly. So I almost think that you can see like her struggling with what she thinks about this. Um, maybe she's resolved it a little bit now, resolved it a little bit more in a slightly more like normal progressive direction. And you can sort of see her struggling with it a little bit um, when she writes the book in the 1970s because she's not quite sure what she thinks. I mean, I think that she's at the time that she's writing the book, she's genuinely in awe of the people who devoted their lives to this project and in fact the purpose of the book in many ways is to rescue their reputations because they had been rendered so completely one-dimensional in the decades after the second red scare was completed and was successful um, but she's also like doesn't really know herself perhaps because in many ways Vivian Gornick is not actually chiefly a political thinker she's not entirely sure why the Communist Party actually did turn out so poorly why things went as badly as they did and so I think the only um, conclusion that she's kind of capable of coming to is that it's almost like a Greek Greek tragedy. Like I said, it was like the the your 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 greatest strength was actually your Achilles heel at the end of the day. That sort that sort of thing, which I'm not sure any of us here on this call would agree is precisely the reason why things ended so poorly in the Communist Party. Because if if that were the case, then. I think that we would all be a little cagier around each other. Instead, I think we look at each other and we're like, 
very admiring of each other for being the kind of people who bring that level of passion to the same to the political project today. Um, it has a separate a, a second note sort of on this topic, which I think is very interesting. Perhaps because Vivian Gornick is not chiefly a political thinker, she didn't really absorb the Marxist dogma about self-interest. And it's really funny because all of these people who she's profiling in the book would have been very um, quick to tell you that really, really Marxism is about, you know, classes following their self-interest. And that's the sort of story of dialectical materialism and its resolution will eventually be socialism, the abolition of class society. And that kind of dogma, which I think, you know, all of us understand that there's like certainly a, a kernel of truth in it or else we wouldn't we wouldn't be socialists and I think all of us identify as Marxists to some extent it does actually preclude like it kind of boxes out ideology and identity a little bit and then you have people other people on the left who try to reintroduce muscle back in ideology and identity in a way that I think is a little ham-fisted and so I'm often trying to like ward that off but I think that this book is really interesting because it shows that even the people who were probably the most dogmatic about Oh, I, ideology is just bohemianism. It's very decadent, you know. It's sort of uh, intellectualism, this wishy-washy stuff. We're the we're the we're the we're the Marxists. We're the we're the people who believe in the sort of immortal science of Marxism. Um, they, of course, were motivated by ideology and by identity and by these squishier things, even like spirituality. I think, um, you know, there's self-interest sure when when many of these people that are profiled in the beginning of the book who were living in poverty decide to become communists of course they want to fight for a better life for themselves but obviously there were people standing side by side with them who never who never made that same decision who were facing the same degree of poverty these were people though at the same time who also i think to quote a little bit from the book felt that they were marching toward their own lives that's a beautiful quote from the beginning of the book um and the same is true even for people who weren't living in poverty. There's this seg segment called Those of the Middle Kingdom, which is about the sort of like middle class intellectuals who are drawn to the party. And there's this incredible thing that I underlined. Uh, um, many thousands joined because they felt themselves to be the spiritual and intellectual heirs of the disenfranchised. These people always reminded me of what the Chinese called those of the Middle Kingdom, meaning those who were motivated by conditions of the spirit rather than of class history. They were edu the educated middle class and were sensitized in individual and emotionally mysterious ways to Marxism and the party. And of course, these people were the very same people who would often turn around and say people are only motivated by their class interest. But of course, they couldn't have been in order to arrive at the position that they arrived at. Yeah, I mean, the, the Marxism of the Communist Party, I have no doubt, both based on her descriptions and just knowing the history of the Communist Party generally, it was like a wooden, you know, it was it was not a, there was not a, it was very orthodox and it was very stifling, I'm sure, and it was used often as a club to beat people with, uh, and nobody who wants to subscribe to uh, Marxism today would... Uh, would would encourage that kind of, i mean no, no i don't know many people who uh you know that that kind of political project the prospects for it are dead even if you wanted to revive it like it's not it's not coming back we're not going back to that kind of uh, uh really rigid uh orthodoxy and and what we mean by marxism has become uh, much more generous than uh, what the the milieus that she's describing uh in the book but uh, but megan you started talking there at the end about um the sense of like how people's uh, selves were, I, I forget the phrase you used, but like the, the sort of self-creation part of this party. And that really was revelatory for me. That I remember the first time I read it uh, was the emphasis in the book on um, how, I mean, she what did she say? She uses a phrase that's like, um, one emerges by merging. Uh, in other words, like the the individual was... Uh, you know, taken to a, a sort of higher level of personal development through giving up some of the, the sort of like individuality uh, or, or not individuality, but like um, through submitting to the party, like to its structures, to its discipline, to this collective project with other people. And I think especially in America, obviously what we were conditioned to think of freedom as 
freedom from. Like, don't tread on me. Like, allow the individual to do whatever the individual wants to do. That's, you know, the maximum amount of individual freedom uh, from is maximum freedom and is what allows for the best uh, sort of flourishing of the individual. And I'm, you know, I, I believe in many of the basic liberal precepts. I don't want to stamp out uh, individual freedom, but she's describing in this book people who, f- who found new kinds of freedom precisely through the submitting of themselves uh, to a collective project. Um, and for those, as I said, th- for those of us who are conditioned to only think about freedom as as maximum negative freedom. Uh, that that is that's not how we're conditioned to think but she describes all these people as like finding themselves in a way that they never could had they not joined that kind of collective project and submitted themselves to it yeah i i think this is really relevant to like what i was gonna say to build on uh Alyssa, what you were saying around some of the like positive aspects uh that can be taken from like uh religiosity and that more universal experience of meaning making Um, and, you know, one of the things that I wrote down, um, after the extended vignette with the Bittermans, um, which is just like, you know, chef's kiss of like the name, uh, Max Bitterman, (laughs) the most bitter character in the book, uh, Gornick goes at one point off to a ranch, um, or a farm, like a wooded farm, because there was an anti-communist, uh, ex-communist. Max Bitterman, um, who had written a history of the CP that was like somewhat measured, but also clear that like, you know, they made a lot of mistakes, etc. So Gornick goes out for an interview and then is sort of like dragged along for two days um, where Bitterman refuses to talk to her and literally like lives out his like archetype of what his name is. Like he comes like storming in and um you know he's working on a new foundation for one of his three houses and is like telling the women to go shopping and like sniping at them the whole time and then he wants to go and talk to the workers in the town but everybody's laughing at him behind their back and he's very just vile and and poisonous and bitter um and gornick doesn't really know how to respond and you know, he has this moment of truth right at the end, finally, where he says to her, communism was a response to the loneliness of the universe. Um, And, you know, there's a really deep, um, I think, when I was reading it, like, Gornick sees a truth in that, and I think that actually speaks to, like, my sense reading the introduction, especially, is, like, she believes that. Uh, Like, she doesn't want to be bitter as bitter as max bitterman was but that's her sort of like general um orientation versus and what i wrote you know when i was reading that was like to me that's like sort of diametrically opposed to deb's idea of ecstasy in the hands clasp of a comrade uh and like engaging in a collective project together and like really seeing the the heights of it um and the heights of of struggle and of building something. And, um, you know, I, I think that we see this not only with ideological projects in the political realm or the religious realm, but we also see it with like, um, the sacrifice that people take on when they're engaging in political work. You know, I've been thinking a lot and rereading a lot about ACT UP um and the emotional affect and the communities um that they created the way they like mobilized um emotionality to be able to move from this grief and this overwhelming sense of like their political horizon uh collapsing of their friends dying in the streets and them not knowing how to do it and they founded an organization that was able to name an enemy and like literally pull in Wall Street traders to like get pissed off and go and mobilize and try to win things. Um, and to me, that really speaks to this like underlying piece of a collective project and an ideological project that is able to redirect um, uh, people that um, are operating in their self-interest, like Megan said, um, 
but they're also building a sort of collective interest um, as well. Um, and I think we desperately need that. You know, for me, climate change um, and uh, obviously right now the like pandemic that's a result of <laughs> the same systems that have created the climate crisis are just the clearest example of why we need this collective ideological foundation, this collective project to bring us together more tightly so that we can be doing politics um, in a more um, united way. Yeah, I also, um, I think, I mean, I completely agree with that. Um, and I was thinking, you know, when Micah, when you were talking about the the kind of um, like the the forms of freedom that she's trying, that she's sort of describing people like finding um, freedom and, and like versions of their self, it's really striking because she's talking about um, it's, you know, it's, it's not just that people are, um, it's, it's like a real, uh, like individual freedom is actually also happening through the, the transformation that comes through participation in the, in the communist party and through like, um, whether that's through like engagement with Marxism. So I'm going to read a few quotes here. This is one part where this guy, um, who, who's at least like name in the book is Dick Nikowski. And he says, um, you know, God, I've never felt so free in my life as I did in those first days when I discovered Marx and the existence of my own mind at the same time in that cold, filthy apartment in Chicago. Like he is the existence of my own mind. That's incredible. You know, like realizing that you have the capacity to sort of to, to read this, to take meaning from it, to understand it, to sort of be on fire with politics and what it means for, for you and your understanding of the world and to, to see the world in a literally different light. Um, there's this other story where this woman, Lily, who's Jewish, uh, is in love with a Chinese man and is afraid her father is going to, uh, to throw her out of the house if she tells him. Um, and she talks to her comrade and the Communist Party about it. Um, and he's like, oh, well, you know, if you want, we'll get a delegation together. We'll, we'll go and like talk to your dad all together. And she goes and she goes and tells her dad um, and she's and he tells her he's going to kill her. Um, and then she says, all of a sudden, it was like you were there in the room with me. And she's telling the story to her comrade later. Uh, I saw you and my branch organizer and all the people I work with. And I felt like the whole Communist Party was right there in the room with me. I looked at my father and I said to him, if you kill me, who will cook your eggs? Um, and it's this like, incredible moment of the, of the kind of way that your comrades can make you braver and make you realize that you're not alone and you can actually engage in collective activity around you know, your kind of collective goals, but also around your individual your individual needs and like to solve problems in your life and to talk back to your boss or to your father or your father who is your boss, you know, like there is this way that I think it really shows um, this uh, in in a really beautiful way, the ways that um, that collective action does um, open up new parts of people's selves to them, but also like really it really does make them freer. Um, and it's not just this kind of way of, of the like, oh, like the collective hive mind or whatever, um, which is interesting because then Gornick sometimes will narrate the like more like hive mind story. Like she'll say people lost themselves in the party. They like lose sight of their personal interests and that like their personal selves. As if, I mean, I don't really believe that there is sort of like a, a self that is just like completely, um, I don't know that you have some self that like, pre-exists your formation in the world and the ways that like you are being made by the world all the time. Um, but she suggests that there's like some kind of, you know, the communist party distorts you in some way, but I think it's showing people not being distorted. They're becoming themselves in a lot of ways. And I think she goes back and forth on that a lot. Um, and I think, you know, as Megan was sort of suggesting before, she is kind of undecided on that, but I, I find that really, I mean, I love these parts of the book. Um, Jody Dean talks about some of these stories that, and her book, Crowds and Party, which she uses like romance of American communism a lot in, and people should check that out too. Yeah, when you were describing the story about the uh, the Jewish woman who stood up to her father, it almost sounded like uh, the like two footprints on the beach uh, yeah, yeah. poster you were talking about. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> like, she's like, uh, you know, thinking about the party. And she she said she imagined them there me. in the room. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. Before we go on, I just want to note, Alyssa, you wrote this review of the Romance of American Communism in Dissent, a longstanding democratic socialist anti-Stalinist journal that was co-founded by Irving Howe, who, uh, as is mentioned uh, in your review and in the intro to the book, uh, that Irving Howe wrote a scathing review of Gornick's book that she says sent her to bed for a week. 
And, uh, you know, you, your review is not uniformly laudatory or anything like that, but you do, there, there was one point where you said something like, um, you know, in our world today, uh, the communist party for better or worse doesn't exist. And I was like, oh my God, Irving Howe is not only angry that you are saying nice things about this book, uh, but he, you said for better or worse, the communist party doesn't exist. And Irving Howe is just doing barrel rolls in his grave right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, it definitely felt to me, it felt like a, a sort of um, I, I felt like it was like a minor victory to get an appreciation of this book. Uh, and to send after sort of how, you know, I mean, he wrote this, this really critical review in the New York Review of Books, but obviously, um, you know, the was his publication. So uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's very interesting as a sort of index of uh, how times have changed. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, we're you're fine. We're finally ready to sort of like wrestle with the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Cold War in a in a new way, in a, in a sort of fairer way, and you're sort of like putting uh, putting the old uh, the old Cold War style arguments that uh, the dissent was often home for uh, behind us through uh, your review. Not to say they're all worthless or anything like that, but the, just that it's like we have a new set of things to wrestle with, and and yeah. and we're not grinding the same axes that we were for you know half a century or whatever it was. Exactly. And as you were saying before, it's just, you know, it's not possible to be on the left today and not have people constantly ask you about Stalinism. Like, it's just not it's not possible to come to the left today without sort of being reminded of this is every time. So the sort of like, uh, I don't know, the the sense that you would have to like revisit that um, in every time you write something about the Communist Party, I think, um, is certainly changed for, I think, uh, you know, whatever we're calling ourselves the new new left or whatever um and yet uh some people have uh been critical of my failure to revisit the uh how critique more in depth so that's interesting <laughs> shocking i'm shocked <laughs> um so we're, uh, we're we're running low on time. Let's go to uh, the the, mo- the place where I think most of our minds, certainly those of us who are on this call, uh, who are on this podcast, go to when reading this, which is uh, and the reason why the book was republished because there is a reborn socialist movement through the Democratic Socialists of America, and uh, you know as, as I said earlier, many DSA members will see themselves in uh, in the passions, uh, you know, the, the description of passion that they. That that Gornick lays out in the in the book. Um, so, I mean, what is it that uh, you, today's socialists, uh, you know, what will they get from this book? What should they take from it? Uh, you know, are there warnings? Are there af- self affirmations? I mean, uh, you know, Alyssa, you talk about this in, in the end of your review, but let's let's start with uh, Sean. I mean, what do you what do you as as a DSA member and you're a, a DSA you know elected leader? I mean, what what do you take from from this in terms of your work within dsa yeah i think that's a great question because i think that dsa is full of people who have different amounts of uh experience with the existing left uh that has been around for a long time and um, you know, some people call it the new, new left. Some people call it the new old left. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a really uh, wide range of experience in terms of actually engaging in that collective project of struggling together, of, you know, standing up to the boss, of uh, generating demands to, uh, like, win campaigns, um, of building organization together, of doing the shit work. Uh, Gornick uh, and her like interlocutors talk a lot about the shit work uh, of organizing. Um, and, you know, Alyssa, you've talked about it in other places as spade work, uh, which I think is a much more positive way of talking about it, too, of like actually engaging in leadership development, of leaflet distribution, of all of those things. And to me, reading this book... Um, as somebody who's been involved in a lot of different types of organizations um, and is now part of an organization that is trying to present a little bit more cohesive unity of action, even if it's different strategies and different tactics. Um, To me, it's really about soaking in the experiences that people are talking about 
and like taking the time to think critically about uh, what it is that like readers might be engaging in in their own lives too. Like it says in the end of your review, Alyssa, like I wish there were more stories about what people are doing now, what the organizations uh, look like, the DSA chapters um, and the campaigns that are being worked on, how people are feeling as they like do that work. Um, I really resonated with with that reading your like review shortly after finishing the book um, was just like a reminder again, not only for myself, but for like tens and tens of thousands of other people that we should all be writing more. We should all be sharing our stories more um, so that we can, you know, engage in in this like agony and ecstasy together of these like feelings of this collective project that we want to be building. Megan? I feel all of that. I think that one thing I I took from the book too is that there was all of this, there was this incredible complex scaffolding that was built up, emotional, institutional, social, and a lot of it came to naught. I mean, we know that it ended quite bitterly due to both repression of the Communist Party and also due to the crimes of Stalin and their revelation. But one thing not to get lost, I think, is that even though the communists sort of set about when they, for example, when they industrialized, they wanted to like recruit every member of the American working class to the Communist Party, and this was obviously not successful, it's it's noted several times in the book and is, I think, indisputably true that the pressure exerted by the Communist Party in the American working class led to a broader atmosphere of class consciousness and class struggle that changed America for the better. And there's even at the very end an incredible little vignette of a Cold War liberal who himself had been on the opposite side of communists, especially during those bitterest years of the of the Red Scare and the Cold War. And he says, now that they've been defeated, he, he says to them, you know, I always really had a, a lot of respect for you guys, which I know probably fell a little bit on deaf ears. But, but I actually think that I don't know who this man is. I don't know if I like him or don't like him. I know that we're on the well, opposite side. Doesn't he say... Um... You know, America was not always kind to you, but America was better off for exactly. you. Exactly, and yeah, exactly, and and that even even someone even someone who has a, you know a different uh, ideal a different ideology, it's not so different that he doesn't you know. For example, a Cold War liberal would have as a set of values, unlike a fascist, would value certain things like uh, perhaps like a multicultural society that is rooted in tolerance or something like democracy, you know. Um, and so, in view of those, I, I presume values that whoever this person is seems to believe in, he he's at least. Able Able, after the war has been fought and the communists have lost, he's at least able to say, you know, America's really a, a, was really a better off for all that you all did. And I think that's bittersweet. I think that probably a lot of people who listened to that thought it was very bittersweet and perhaps... Um, and yeah, it's a kind of sad, right? Like, you know, I think they, they wanted revolution and they didn't get revolution. They simply um, moved the needle. But I also think that a lot of working class people's lives were significantly better because of the effort that the communists put in. For example, just the incredible amount of energy that the communists put into the labor movement led to an upsurge in organized class activity, not, not even in places where there were communists present, but just in general throughout the class. And people have benefited benefited from the protections won during that period, for example, for many decades to come, which is not something to overlook. And it, what it took to win all of that, you know, many dominoes having fall, fallen over down the line, was uh, this incredible emotional process of building a world, this kind of pro this like project of world making to give radicals a sense uh, that there was a reason to do it day in and day out and to weather all of the defeats. And I think that, um, again, to return to the Marxist orthodoxy that the reason was cold material self-interest, we know that's not true because they weren't seeing enough returns on their gains immediately to have kept them in that fight, um, you know, year after year during the darkest years. I think that in reality, what kept them going, of course, was the promise eventually of a better life materially for themselves and for others, but also was the admiration of their peers, the admiration of people that they admired. 
and the sense of an integrated self that that gave them. And I think that you see that in DSA too. I mean, like, you know, for example, like I, you know, Micah and I take take a lot of heat from outside the organization. And like just this morning, we were sort of uh, commenting on like, it, it hits a little different when you take heat inside the organization, right? Because like, we really admire everybody in DSA. And it like, it matters to us that we are treated like comrades. And of course, that knowledge, um, we try to hold, we try to remember that and hold that so that we can remember to treat other people like comrades in DSA, even when we disagree with them. I think there's something very worthwhile in that project, because Ultimately, that's the glue that's holding us all together, month after month and year after year. Alyssa? I agree with so much of what uh, Megan and Sean have said. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's interesting to think about what to take from it today, because as we've been sort of discussing, it's both it both feels so um, like immediate almost in a way, like you can read these stories and think of people you know or think of your own experiences, and yet it is such a different moment. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, recognizing in some ways that the 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 parts that are sort of submerged in a way in in the Gornick um, and in and in the story um, are are you know are really important. Like the fact of that the Communist Party doesn't exist anymore um, is you know that's that's a huge change. Having this kind of um, institutional form, the people who she's describing sort of like come into this organization in the specific moment in time. They come through the depression. They they sort of find their way to the party, and then it organizes. As Megan's saying, it's going out, and people sort of then um, find their way to it in many other ways. Um, but but it is crushed in the U.S. Labor unions are crushed. A lot of the institutions that would have like channeled people um, into these forms of sort of comradeship and solidarity and meeting making and so on just have not existed. And obviously, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about this at the end of the review, but the, you know, the, the obvious sort of comparison today, as we've been discussing, is DSA and the way that that has had to sort of form um, in the post-2008 moment, you know, the sort of the sort of comparative moment of like 2008 to the depression um like we didn't have the same kind of institutions and organizations for people to find their way to have been like rebuilding them and i think that is a really important project um and yet they look you know they're going to look different in this moment the kinds of um you know dsa is a very different kind of organization than the cp usa uh and we need to, I think, think about what kinds of, you know, practices and forms and what participation in that world looks like in a different way. Um, similarly with, you know, contemporary unions and all that, which is why, you know, um, as Sean was saying, I, I was, um, I really want to sort of uh, see more um, here, you know, whether it's um, through podcasts or uh, people's writing or like, you know, tweeting and things like that can do this, but just people expressing like what kinds of activity they're engaged in, um, like what that looks like in a really, I think, visceral level, because I do think so much of it, um, like we do need these sort of worlds and sources of meaning and comradeship and solidarity. Um, but I think we also need to understand them in relation to like the forms of organization, the kinds of things they're trying to do, the tactics and strategies and all of these things that are kind of like around the edges of Gornick's story, because that's how I think we'll understand like what our own moment is um, and and be able to, to, to you know, um, hopefully um, not uh, live what Gornick sees as this like inevitable kind of um, crumbling of the of, of meaning um, and politics or the, the you know, um, the charge that like if you let politics mean too much it will destroy you um, that Megan was describing um, and so I think that reading it for some of the it's you know it's hard to read things <laughs> for like some of the and for some of the things we find relatable in them while like holding it a little bit at a distance um, and and trying to not you know attach too romantically to some of what she's describing um, because I think it's something that you could see being thrown in your face almost. Um, but I think that's totally possible to do. And, uh, and, you know, and to not read it in the way that Gornick herself, I think, did. Because I find, I find it really kind of sad that Gornick at the end is basically like, um, you know, is, has kind of, it feels like uh, lost hope. And, you know, as you are saying earlier, Micah um, doesn't really believe that anything is possible. Um, I think her own kind of, uh, like, her own mode of engagement with politics now is basically disillusionment, disappointment. Um, and that is like where things will always end up. And I think that there is a real tendency towards that on the left. Like there is an attachment to failure and to like noble failure and tragic beauty. And like, we're fighting the good fight and we know we're going to lose, but we're going to keep doing it. And it's like, 
you know, I think it's it's tough to kind of um, navigate the uh, the the space between, on the one hand, like having real commitments that we are committed to you no matter what, and that we're going to keep fighting even if we don't, you know, reach all of our goals. Because, like, you know, there's all victories are partial. Um, I think it's hard to believe in the same way that the people, um, you know, Gornick's talking to, uh, to believe that, like, you know, the revolution is going to happen and change everything in the next 10 years, the way people will describe, you know, they really have this faith that I think is harder to access um, after seeing uh, defeat after defeat. Um, but we also don't want to, you know, then say, well, it's just, it's just an expressive thing. We're doing this because we believe it and not because we believe we're going to get anywhere. And I think trying to hold this together um, is, is really important to do and, 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 hard to do, uh, which is why I think it's important for us to be talking about. Um, and I think that Gornick gives us a lot to work with in that regard. Well, there we've covered a lot of this book. There's a ton more to cover that we didn't get to. I feel like I could have done a whole hour-long podcast just on the first two paragraphs of the introduction of the book. But uh, we'll have to, uh, as Alyssa is calling for, we'll have to leave that for somebody else to take up and engage in those discussions. Um, but uh, I think in in any in any cases, as hopefully the listener can hear in, in uh, what, uh, the ground we've covered today and and the sort of like uh, emotional uh, pitch that we've described us being in as we read it, it's an extremely rich book, and I'm extremely grateful to Verso for uh, republishing the book. It's a, a book that certainly deserves to be read and wrestled with and argued with and be frustrated by and cry during your reading and all the full range of human uh, emotions uh, that, we're, that we're capable of. I would, I would encourage uh, especially the, the, the 21st century socialists, the, uh, the members of the newly reborn socialist movement, it is a book that is worth engaging with. And uh, thank you to the three of you for engaging it with Do me. a reading group with your local DSA chapter. <laughs> Do it yeah, collectively. absolutely. <clears throat> thanks all for discussing. It was really fun. Yeah, thanks, y'all. This was great. Thank you, guys. Catch you later. Bye.